All right. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Am I, uh, am I, uh, I guess I'm co-hosting with you here, so. Yeah. Um, oh, but it's, it's your platform, so why don't you welcome everybody, and then we'll get going. Hi, this is Rabbi Shay Stout, broadcasting live from the Soul Word Studios in Five Towns, Long Island. And I welcome all of you, as well as our very special co-host, not a guest, but a co-host, Rabbi... Nehemia Schusterman, a dear friend and a partner in a real labor of love, passion project, as they call it, called Four Cups Haggadah. Rabbi Schusterman, take it away. All right. Um, so thank you for having me, um, Rabbi Tau, Rabbi Shays. Um, we're going to toggle between all the different names. Um, and uh, thanks for all those who are here, both uh, on the Zoom and on YouTube and are part of this book launch. I think this is the first uh, book launch ceremony I've ever been a part of in my life, quite possibly my last, um, unless somehow you and I uh, find some passion project to get into again. So um, I think the way this was marketed was, is, you know, how did this come to be? And um, th this book launch. So I'll give a little bit of a background to some of the events that led to uh, where we are today. And that is, if you told me that I would know anything or have anything to do with anything in the world of recovery, um, Jewish recovery or otherwise, um, a couple of years ago, I would have just looked at you with a blank face, not because it's unimportant, just because I, I just knew little to nothing about it. You know, I had read the book, God of Our Understanding. So I knew about it. It was a good book to me. Everybody's or, read God of Our Understanding. It, 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 and anyone who hasn't really should. That, because oh, thank it, you. Because, and, no, but, and this is not even a plug for that book. There's a plug for a different book. But the reason is because God of Our Understanding has such a wide range. It is so, so relevant and so pertinent, even to those who are not in the classic uh, clinical sense in recovery, because on some level, we all are in recovery. And there's a lot of incredible spirituality um, in the world of recovery that I've gotten to learn a lot more about in the last little bit, but by no means would I say I'm an expert. So there's a lot of lingo, a lot of lingo in the world of recovery. So here's going to be my first lingo drop for the night and feel free to correct me because I'm but by no means an expert. So in the, by the way, Nehemia, not to cut uh, you off, but when you say lingo, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to break your flow, by the way. So we, we break my flow. We never, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, we never did a live thing. Well, actually, I shouldn't say we never did a live thing before. We did. You and I, you were a guest for about five minutes on my soul words, uh, fundraising campaign yeah but that was that was a side note you got you no, had, you okay. things going on then so I, i'm gonna learn your style right now i don't know if it's good to cut you off or not but you say lingo i want to tell you something very interesting regarding lingo there's an english expression for insiders lingo and it's called a shibboleth shibboleth or shibboleth i'm not sure how to pronounce it actually uh, probably shibboleth s-h-i-b-o-l-e-t-h -E it's actually a biblical word the word yeah, shibboleth. Yeah, right. It's from it's from Nach. Right. That there was a, a civil war between the tribes of Israel. Right, so right. they had different pronunciations, different. And tribes. that's how they were able to tell the two sides apart. So how do you know if he, he, he looks so Jewish, right? How do you know if he's <laughs> so they would tell them, pronounce the word shibboleth. And right. if they pronounced it like with their tribal accent, then you would be able to know which tribe they were from. So the, in English, the word is sh uh, shibboleth or shibboleth. I'm not sure. Uh, again, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but the, the word is uh, sh shibboleth. But this is what I want to tell you. Dr. Bob, co-founder of AA, said 
There are no shibboleths. I'm not sure how to pronounce the plural. I can't pronounce the singular, let alone the plural. But he said there are no shibboleths in AA. In other words, he doesn't no want there to be a barrier that if you don't know the lingo, you know, you can't be part of recovery. So at any rate, Dr. Bob didn't want there to be lingo, at least not in a way that makes anyone feel that they're not a part of. So. Okay, no, you, you didn't ruin my flow, though. Though I, I because I know myself, I, I do drop notes just to remember my flow because I forget. Um, but we'll get to Dr. Bob in a second. And by the so way, as rabbis, another side point. I think that we do this all the time, and we have to really remind ourselves not to use Jewish inside language that makes people who maybe don't have such a robust Jewish education feel feel like outsiders. So at any rate, so what we'll try, we'll endeavor <laughs> to spell out all the inside lingo, both recovery and Jewish and, and otherwise. All right. And on that note, yes. the first lingo drop on the night, if that's lingo drop. the lingo drop will be um, my qualifier. That's more of an hour. Oh, oh that's really, you sound like a real experienced recovery guy. Only a teeny bit. Only that's in, in Al-Anon. That's almost how they open. Everyone begins their little thing. So my son is my qualifier, which means um, for those who are not familiar, you know, why do I have even any right to say anything about anything? And the answer is that my direct connection to the world of recovery is I have a son who is in recovery, recovered. I know that itself is a whole debate, but we'll leave that for a larger conversation on the topic because once we once we go there, we're not coming back. And, and, and we are on an agenda tonight. Um so, you know, by the way, if Nehemiah knows how to do anything, it's how to keep me to a schedule. Um, well, you, you can get to that part of it later. It's funny because I can't keep <laughs> Which myself is the to only way this book exists. But, well, I can't keep myself to a schedule, but apparently I'm good at doing it for others. You know how to manage. Yeah, that's right. All right. You do belong so, in Al Anon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, Baruch Hashem, a couple of years ago, I knew no- nothing of this. I had read a little bit. Um, and then a um, little over a year ago, um, what had been going on for a long time prior, which was uh, my oldest son, um, who is Kanina Har doing a lot better today. Um, it, 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 the situation reached a, an epic proportion. He was involved in drugs and alcohol, and um, the situation became unmanageable to the point that he reached out for help. And uh, Baruch Hashem, that set a, a journey in motion um, for him, and, and I'm being very conscious to not talk too much about him and his specific journey. Um, he's pretty open about his story, so if you'd like to follow him, he's, his his handle on Instagram is Schuster Peckle. Um, so uh, he's got that little Schuster humor as well. Um, but but he's he's the he's the reason this is all happening. Um, but the point is, is back up, let's say, a little over a year ago, a little more than a year ago. Um, Life as my family knew it kind of turned upside down as my son went through this um, incredibly strong challenge. Um, everyone knows that recovery is, is a disease that affects the whole family or addiction affects the whole family. Um, there's the addict, there's the parents, the siblings and all their friends. And it doesn't just stay in one spot. And, uh, you know, life as we knew it then changed. And it's interesting because, you know, um, I have a little bit of perspective, a little bit of rear view mirror to look at. And we're all much, much better people for it. Like it's really changed us all for the, for the good. But, but, you know, there are challenges that go along with it. And um, at the time that all of this came about, let's go, let's rewind back in time till, uh, let's say, uh, 
roughly last year, Pesach time, my son was who had been in the hospital and he had gone to a, a recovery program, which was a disaster. And I know that you've spoken about that in some of your other workshops that I participated in. Um, and then he finally was at another recovery center, which was significantly better. And, um, and it was now Pesach time and he was finishing that recovery center um, during Pesach time. And from there, um, the plan was for him to go to a sober living home and it was Pesach and because of COVID, we were able, our Chabad house was not able to host. Um, so we were able to go to a brother of mine in Atlanta for Pesach. And during that time, there was so much going on and there was so much uncertainty, so much unknown going on in our life. Um, while thankfully my son was on his own journey um, in the right direction, heading to good places and, and, uh, and we were figuring things out as we went along, um, but he was unhappy and miserable. We were unhappy and, and, and miserable. And um, we had a lot of questions and very few answers. Now, in the time leading up to that, from the beginning of the crisis until that point, um, you know, my wife and I, uh, my wife and I had both, you know, worked on something to get ourselves uh, um, educated. Um, on, on, the, on the ideas of recovery, you know, I'd read the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, which again, you know, just like God of our understanding should be mandatory reading, that should be mandatory reading for everybody, whether or not you are directly um, affected by, by um, any addiction of any sort. Um, and we joined Al-Anon meetings and we read the 12 and 12, 12 steps and 12 traditions. And so I had like a loose knowledge of the information because again, you have to be careful. I'm, I'm a rabbi, if, but there's, there is something biblical about the big book of AA. It's not a book of Bible. It's not canonized. It's not Jewish. Um, you know, I know you have a whole backstory to that, you know, from uh, Carl Jung getting his information from, uh, I think it was the Magad, right? Yeah. The Magad of Mesrich. So, so there's definitely some Jewish um, influence over there, but there's like the Torah in this way, I'll make, I think it's safe to say that there's layers and layers and layers the big book also has incredible layers and you can't just read it. It's not a novel. You need to study it and then study it again and again and again. Um, and you can interrupt my flow if you want to chime in with something over there. You're doing um, I, great. I, I see that look on your face. Um, and anyway, so the point is, is that as, so Pesach was here. Pesach is uh, for those who are familiar with those who are, are uh, um, religious and observant, you know, you're not supposed to be doing too much work. And I was out of town. So I had a lot of extra time to do a lot of studying. And I was studying different talks of the Rebbe from Sichas, my marm, some of the more mystical discourses, um, and then Pesach just related. Pardon me? Oh, yeah. All Pesach related stuff. And the one thing that just kept on popping into my mind is that everything I am studying is, is stuff I've been, been dealing with when in, in I, I, I saw flavorings of that in AA in the book or in the 12 steps and 12 traditions. Um, just in general, the whole idea of, of Exodus from a place of, of, of Egypt, which was total, you know, despair to redemption. You know, just the themes kept on popping up more and more and more. And I said to myself, you know, there's got to be like a Haggadah that you that the Haggadah has instead of having the commentary of whoever you know, there must be thousands and thousands of different kinds of Haggadahs out there, but there must be a Haggadah that has, that it's a recovery Haggadah. So I, so I Googled it and I saw that there, there were a couple of, you know, 
PDF copies available on, online, you know, grainy copies of things not particular. Um, Rabbi Tversky did have a Haggadah, but, it, but it, maybe you could help us understand the distinction between his and, and the Haggadah that, that you and I helped put together. Um, but but let, let me just finish that flow and then, then, then maybe you can address that. Um, and so I, I jotted a few notes for myself and I said, you know what, um, you know, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll be the guy who, who will help put that Haggadah together. This was before I reached out to you. Um, and, you know, another influence, uh, another piece that was very influential in the whole conversation was I had been at a bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah in Atlanta just a few weeks before Pesach for my nephew. And he quoted that line in his bar mitzvah speech. It's funny. People don't think that anyone was listening to the bar mitzvah speech. I was listening. So he, my, my nephew quoted, uh, I think it's from Jonathan Sachs, um, you know, the answer to why is what. Um, and I'm sure his speech was written by his father. But, you know, I was sitting in, in a huge bowl of why. Like, why is this happening? What, why me? Why my family? What's going on? Why am I? What, what, why? What's going on? And, and I had so many whys in my head and there was no answer. And, and it turns out there really still is no answer um, unless the answer maybe is what. And the, what is what am I going to do about it? And I said, you know, maybe helping to put this Haggadah together would be the what to the why is this happening? Why am I suddenly touched by addiction and recovery, a world that I knew virtually nothing about? And so that led me to you. So I was at my brother's and I said, you know, I said to my brother, I said, this, this, we have to make this, this has to happen. So he says, I think your first step is to call Rabbi Shays Taub. He is the, uh, the foremost expert on Jewish recovery in, in the, certainly in the Orthodox world. Um, I, I, I'd venture more than that, but-, but I, I object to that description. I really have to object, but I, I, I don't, yeah, I'm very uncomfortable with that. I don't think it's true. But uh, okay, Elio, your brother said to call me. That's that's All fine. Right. You can always and call me. Your, your job is to be humble, and then my job is to call call balls and strikes as I see them. Okay, in any event, regardless. So I called you, and um, um, you responded in, very enthusiastically. You were very excited. You said, "Oh, I, I want to do this. Yes, yes, yes. I want to. I, I I've been wanting to do a recovery together for years." You said. You told me, in fact, and and you were proven true because. Go Daddy Doesn't Lie. You said, I even bought a domain because I know the title of the book that I haven't yet put together. That's right. So, uh, and, and the name of the book is, is The Four Cups. The name of this, I got that. That's, that's okay. And that's going to be my first time doing this right here. That's the name of Four, four Cups, F-O-U-R, Cups, C-U-P-S dot org. And I just put it, oh, I put it in the private chat. Let me put it in the public chat. <laughs> um, um, the the fourcups.org is, by the way, and I'll, and I'll add it to the uh, YouTube chat as well. Um, the Four Cups that are, that's where you can buy a copy, um, see some sneak peek pages of the inside, um, buy in bulk, and you save. You know, I feel like the infomercial already. But the point is, is that you told me that you're very excited about it. You want to be involved in it. But like every rabbi, you said, I don't have time. There's no way I can do this. It, it's, this is a, a gargantuan project. It's going to take a ton of time. And I, I just don't have the time to do this. And me being me said, I said, okay, well, that's, that shouldn't stop us just because I don't have the time, you know, so he doesn't have the time. We're going to have to find a way to make it happen. So I said to you, how about, you know, we, we spoke some technical stuff. I said, what about if you just send me a lot of WhatsApps, like bombardment with hundreds and hundreds of WhatsApps? I said, if I can get that transcribed um, and then we can get the, you know, edited and printed and laid out and all that other good stuff. Um, we can make this happen. And this, by the way, this may be a first. I don't know if there's any other book on the planet that ultimately came into reality literally via WhatsApp. 
Um, so, and, and in fact, that's what we did. We made a little WhatsApp chat, you know, I think it's called Haggadah um, Chase or something like that. I don't remember exactly um, the name of our chat. And that's, that's what happened. So we started and, and, and I said, Let, let's spread it out over six months. You're like, if you want it ready for next Pesach, we need to be done in a month. And so really that when you contacted me, it was the day after Pesach, two days. After, it was it was either Israchag, the day after Pesach or two days. It was it was right after right. Pesach. And I, and, and I said, if we want it ready for next Pesach, we got to do it now. Yeah. Right. So you clearly had a lot more experience because, you know, <laughs> I, I've now learned about supply chains and China. So, so the truth is, all right, so this this might be a good time for me to take a, a step aside for a second and and throw out some thank yous, because not all the thank yous made it into the book. Um to the first edition, there'll be a second edition, please God, as, as we'll talk in a moment. Um, so the transcriber, so let's, the, the, so this is how the process went. In, in the end, I was able to inject a few of my little suggestions, the ones that I jotted those notes at the beginning, but ultimately you collected all the information and you verbally transcribed them um, to me or said them over in the now WhatsApp. I interject a little bit about the background before that. Okay, go ahead. Okay, because before you even got the, the WhatsApps, there was a whole process of putting together the the information because I, I cannot claim authorship of, of this book. Um, what I tried to do is put it into one cohesive voice so that it should sound consistent. But really all these ideas are ideas that were shared with me by various Jews in recovery from various different fellowships at various different times. Um, maybe some of it's my own insight, but this, this is really a, uh, a we project. This is really, this was written by committee. And yeah, I admit that I'm the one who put it together. So it should, it should flow and it should sound like one, one voice, but the, the ideas are from Jews in recovery from, from all over. And, 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 and I want to add, I know you were, you were mentioning about second editions, but I, I can't hold back. And I want to say that there will definitely, with Hashem's help, be a second edition, because the whole point here is we want more submissions. Uh, I was able to put together only that which I either already had heard, or I was able quickly to put together from various contacts in, in recovery. But we, we invite... Uh, more submissions so that we can have in the future, God willing, a second edition with more and more experience, strength, and hope from, from more people in recovery. And, and let me tell people that same link, fourcups.org, where you can buy the book, you can also make submissions over there. You can email them, or there's like a there's actually a little web form on that web page. You can make submissions there, and they'll be held in a secure bunker until uh, Rabbi Shea's Taub has the has a chance to look at them, review them, and 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 if they pass uh, muster, to be a part of a part of the, the next edition. Um, so yes, it, it, well, let me ask you: Was your intention that when I say your intention, was your vision of what the finished product would look like, um, was your idea that it should mirror like the big book of, of AA where there's no formal author of the book? I mean, that's obviously my inspiration. That's where I got it from. The idea, I mean, everyone knows obviously that, that Bill W. was the one who was the final uh, editor as far as the, the voice of, of the big book, but it was written by committee. And it's not his his personal wisdom, and he never claimed it to be. And I thought that was a pretty good way of 
putting together uh, a book that might help some people. Yeah. No, listen, it's it's exciting and it's creative. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it just adds to the flavor of, of, of what the finished product looks like in, in having that kind of by committee um, style to it. Um, you know, I want to say some thank yous to some of the people who didn't uh, think properly in the book. I'll do it briefly. I see that the sponsor, uh, the named sponsor of the book, Harriet and David Maldow. By the way, when you say sponsor in a recovery setting. You have to clarify. <laughs> be careful. But let, let me let me uh, sponsor sponsees. I, I have to come up with a different word for it. The the, the named um, benefactor. Benefactor. Thank you. The named benefactor, whose name is on the front of the book, um, the Mal the Maldo family edition. Harry and David Maldo. They're actually on the Zoom. I see their names. Um, who who really made this um, possible from a financial perspective? And there's a nice dedication from them in the beginning of the Agada. Um, they're on the line, so obviously a thank you to them. But um, important thank yous are my sister-in-law Denise Schusterman, who took those WhatsApp notes that you sent to me and typed them up. Um, and, and in no particular order, Shalom Lane. Um, people, uh, um, he, he's he's a a quiet gem in the world of. Uh, of, of writing, incredible, incredible um, editor. Um, he did a, a, an enormous amount of work. Yakova Weber, who was a proofreader, I, you know, I think she found like thousands of tiny little mistakes. You know, the, these you were things tell that... everybody how, uh, how much serenity I uh, <laughs> think to pray for when we're finding thousands of typos. Well, the good news is, is that I think it's control H, you know, where you can replace. A lot of them were like, you know, uh, inverted uh, apostrophe. But, but I'll tell you, this is um, um, for people who don't know, Rabbi Taub is a stickler for details. He really wants things to be perfect. And an uh, 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 inverted colon, you know, could be a reason for a bad day. So you got to really, <laughs> it's a compliment, but, but, it, but it also, should, you know, lets you know the level of, 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 of perfection. That was at least that, that, that we, we, that you were progress striving not for. Perfection, your progress, not perfection. I know, I know. There you go. You're, you're doing lingo drops left and right over here. Um, progress, not perfection. And, and don't worry that there will certainly be a number of mistakes to keep everyone humble in this process. Um, that, that, we that we count on, we're hoping for the, for someone to find a real good typo, juicy one. Exactly. And, and exactly. what would be a recovery Haggadah without a juicy typo? And, and you know, a, a, an extra extra free copy to someone who gets like a really big, big boo-boo. Um, I'm, I'm Arik Raskin, who was the, like the uh, religious researcher sourcing, you know, sources in Tanakh and, and, and teachings of d different uh, mystics and whatnot. Um, and, a, and, really, and I, I want to just mention about Rabbi Raskin's work something I'm very proud of, the fact that we have footnotes. Because although the insights here are like folk wisdom from the rooms, but the Jewish sources are, are cited. And these are classic traditional rabbinic sources. So it is, is a beautiful mix of being very contemporary and, and from the people, you know, from the wisdom of the rooms. But at the same time, it's, it's really rooted in, in authentic tradition. Yes, um, and, and and yeah, and that was something you insisted on, and and actually, uh, I think it's an, an incredible bonus to the book. Um, and finally, Maishi Muched again, the spotlight team, who we beat up on pretty hard, but there's no way this would have been able to have happened and come out in such a beautiful way that it did without their uh, um, participation and um, real real big efforts and to make it work. They did an incredible job um, and uh, put in endless endless hours in getting it done. Um, but what I did learn now is, you know, those things that you hear in the news about supply chains 
those things are real. The book should have been on on U.S. shores months ago. Um, the good news is, is you know, and, and also like, apparently from China to New York, you can go through the Suez Canal. You can go. In, there's a lot of directions and ways you can go, but it's cool. You can follow the ship. The ship is scheduled to arrive in three days. So get those orders in um, um, the 11th. Yeah, that's three days. Um, so it, they pushed back two days, but that's after many other delays. It's Mercy Shamla here, and you can order your books. And uh, and that's that. So that's that's a little bit of some of the background, how all this happened. Um, what I will say is um, Baruch Hashem, um, at Shusterpeckel, the the qualifier is Baruch Hashem doing better. I'm sure he's going to see this at some point. Um, he's doing a lot better. He's doing his work. Um, and uh, and he certainly can follow him and see how that journey has gone along. But that's not the focus of today's conversation. That's just a little bit how we got into all of this. So someone asked a question and, and we kind of touched on that before. So maybe let's just um, um, address the elephant in the room. Um, that was one of your jokes from your your joke session the other night, something about the, the elephant. Okay. And the point is, is that, um, um, so how does this Haggadah, I'm not going to say different from all other Haggadah, but how does it different, different from the Haggadah? <laughs> how is that, Haggadah different from all other Haggadah? I know, right? It, 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 there's too much of that going Too on. easy? Too corny? No, it's perfect. No, no, it's, it's appropriate. It's, 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 the, it's the flavor. Um, but how is this different specifically from Dr. Tursky, who I know is, uh, um, he, he, we can certainly say is, you know, posthumously, but but the leader in Jewish recovery. Um, and the goal was for the book to have already been on store shelves by his first yard site, but it'll Mercer shall be out for the first pace after his yard site. How does this differ from the Haggadah that he put out? First of all, from bondage to freedom, which is Rabbi Dr. Torsky Oliver Shalom's uh, Haggadah, is, is enormous. It's fantastic. Without from bondage uh, to freedom, this wouldn't exist. And I would say without the body of Rabbi Dr. Torsky's work, none of any, none of the things I've done in recovery would exist. He was the one who, who blazed the path and did it fearlessly and did it when it was a lot less popular and a lot less accepted than it is now. So I, I won't say that, what I'll say is like this, he opened up the whole path and he made it all possible and we're just humbly con continuing in his in his uh, path. That's how I'll say it. But uh, definitely, from bondage to freedom is a is a classic. Okay, um, and all right, I, I I will you know I'll 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 know my place, and I'll I won't say anymore. I'll say that is an incredible, as you said, that no one can challenge anything that Dr. Tursky wrote said because he's truly um, one of the greats. Um, it, this book is, you know, bigger, more colors and pictures, but but there is something unique in the style, just the layout, the setup, you know, the pull quotes from well, the big it, book. it is more today because it is from today and it, it's it's more, uh, it, it, at least aesthetically, like you mentioned, spotlight design, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. So like just from an aesthetic point of view, yes, it's, it's very 2022. And uh, it's like, it's, a, it's just nice to look at. It's nice to hold. It's nice to, nice to smell. Yeah. <laughs> like all the senses are engaged. And if you open up the, you, you rustle the pages, you can hear it. It's nice to listen to. And you can touch it. Yeah. All the five senses are engaged. All right. So you're, you're holding up the book. Maybe hold it to the camera just for one second longer. Um, I, I think the question that pops out is the name of the Haggadah is the Four Cups. Yeah. Now, it's, it's a recovery Haggadah. Yeah. And presumably, 
you know, without doing a full in-depth dive into a lot, uh, well, maybe we'll do a little bit of diving into some um, recovery conversation if, if, you, if you're okay with that. Um, you would think that title seems to be contradictory to the mission of, of the Haggadah, which is yeah. to hold back from in, indulging in our addiction. Um, well, for most or for many, the addiction is alcohol. And if not, the start is certainly a part of the problem for many. So, so what's with that title? Yeah, what's, what's up with that, as they say? Um, so first of all, like you mentioned, I had the title for the Haggadah long before I actually started writing it. Um, and what, according to GoDaddy, when did I buy the URL for cups.org? I, I don't remember offhand, but it was, it was certainly, you know, eight, nine years prior. It was like to eight, nine years ago. Yeah. So I wanted to call four cups for, for eight or nine years. I'm just going to read from the, uh, introduction, a few paragraphs right here. Um, this, this is a few paragraphs from the introduction that talk about the meaning of the title. The title of this Haggadah was chosen. Oh, this is on page eight. If you want to pull it up on the PDF. You want me to share this one and show this one? Yeah, it's on page eight. Yeah. Okay. okay. Introduction. Go, so go to the next page of the introduction. Yeah, and right there, the title. That's it. The title of this Haggadah was chosen in order to convey a subtle but powerful message. The role of the four cups in the Seder is well known. For those who cannot safely consume wine because of its alcoholic content, the question arises as to how one should view this tradition. Of course, on a very simple and practical level, we know that it is perfectly acceptable according to Jewish law to substitute grape juice for wine at the Seder. On a deeper level, however, we acknowledge that one who does not drink wine might wonder if it would be better to, com- be, to be completely distanced from the entire notion of drinking four cups, even if replaced with grape juice. Therefore, we feel that there is an important message in making it clear that the four cups not only have a place at a recovery Seder, but that they perhaps take on an even greater meaning in such a context. The four cups are meant to be cups of blessing from which godliness, godly goodness flows. Although we may have replaced the physical contents of the cup with grape juice instead of wine, we do not forego the spiritual contents of the cups and the blessings that they provide us. To the contrary, we are even more cognizant of their power. For someone still struggling to escape the Egypt of active addiction, the image of four cups is one that provokes dread. However, for one who celebrates the miracle of today's freedom from bondage, The four cups have a very different meaning. They are cups of spiritual bounty, of wisdom, humility, and gratitude. We drink from these cups freely because their contents do not make false promises of escape. Rather, they fill us with ever-increasing levels of God consciousness and the awareness that the only reason we are no longer slaves to Pharaoh is that we are servants of God. I'm going to stop the share. And before I say, so say that again in your own words, because those are your words. Um, but what I'm hearing you say basically is that, well, I, I think you answered the question on two levels. On one level, you're saying those who are drinking grape juice instead of um, something alcoholic because of their, their their disease should not feel any less than the cups of bounty still. Right. Uh, that's oh. that's on a very simple level. There's there's no less than here halachically. There's no there's no question whatsoever. Yeah, that, that that's on the most simple level. 
but now on the deeper level that that, that the I didn't want to mirror. Level. I wanted you to say that. One. Right. <laughs> so on the deeper level, the idea is that the four cups, you know, to someone who's still struggling in active addiction, um, uh, that, that that can be terrifying. The four cups, I'm going to have to be at a Seder and everybody's drinking and they're going to push it on me. Or even if they don't push it on me, I'm going to see it. I'm going to be exposed to it. And, and all this dread that's associated with it. But what we have to realize is this. The four cups is, are, are, are cups of blessing, are cups of, 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 of godliness. And one who is in recovery doesn't miss out on what those cups offer from a spiritual uh, perspective. They don't have to forego it. They don't have to... Um, you know, to say, well, you know, it would have been nice to have the four cups, but I can't, I can't partake in it. No, you should know that your four cups of grape juice have all of the spiritual benefit and perhaps not to compare. (laughs) I won't compare one person to another person. I won't say more than other people, but I'll say certainly that the cups of recovery (laughs) are infinitely more, more, full of blessing than than any of the false promises of the cups of active addiction so we should know that the four cups is not something we have to hide from we don't have to pretend it's not part of the seder no i'll make i'll make a bold statement the real four cups are 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 the four cups of recovery whether there's grape juice or there's wine is not the point if you can't safely consume wine so there's grape juice but that's not the point and by the way i should mention that there are plenty of people in recovery who are in different fellowships other than AA or, or, or people who, you know, alcohol is not their issue. They can safely consume the wine. And, and so it, to me, it's not about the physical contents of the cup. Those who cannot safely consume um, wine will, 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 will drink grape juice. But the point is the spiritual content of the cups, that when you come to the Seder, as someone who has a personal redemption experience and you see these these cups as an embodiment of, you know, a tangible, (laughs) uh, a physical uh, symbol of, of your personal journey, that can only be something to be celebrated. So, you know, like so often people are like, oh, four cups. Oh, I mean, I'm in recovery. No, no, no. Recovery. (laughs) The four cups belongs to recovery. I'm reclaiming the four cups. You know, would it be um, incorrect to take that even a step further and say on some level what the average participant of a Seder is endeavoring to achieve via their Seder and the four cups that go along with it, the person who's in active recovery has already gotten there on some level. They may be shooting for more or higher or deeper, but on some level, they've already attained a certain level of freedom from that addiction that was making their life a mess. Look, we all have our personal journey. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. The the Jewish people, when they left Egypt, went on 42 uh, jaunts in the wilderness from from captivity to to entering the promise of their 42 jaunts. So the Baal Shem said that every one of us in our own personal life will go on 42 journeys. Like every one of us in microcosm lives that story. 
So, you know, <laughs> I have a line in the, in the introduction to God of Our Understanding where I say, you know, they say, there's an old, uh, an old expression, the Jews are like everybody else, only more so. More so. <laughs> so I said, maybe, perhaps we could say, you know, that recovery is, uh, that, that, that addiction is like an exaggeration of the human condition. So the addicts are like everybody else. Only more so. It's more so. Yeah. Only more so. Maybe just a little bit with more exaggerated, a little bit more acute. So what I'm saying is, I, I don't want to say that oh, it's the recovery people who uniquely have an uh, an exodus experience. But what I am saying is definitely, if you have somebody who has that experience, the recovery experience of exodus at your seder, <laughs> you're going to see that this thing isn't a ritual. It's not a ceremony. It's real. It's the celebration of something that happened to me when God took me out of Egypt. Like we, like we tell the, uh, the, when the, when the four sons ask, or the four children ask the question, we, the father says, God took me out of Egypt. It reminds me of uh, that story, which I think is real and is a, you know, uh, uh, attributed to Rabbi Dr. Torsky about, you know, why does he send people to meetings? Why not send them to a Tanya class? Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> right. I'm going to uh, let you finish that because you'll do it right. I mean, people asked him, uh, you know, religious Jews who uh, were in recovery, why didn't he send them to a, uh, a Torah class that would, uh, you know, learn Musa, Chassidus? And he said, look, when, when they'll study with the life or death earnestness of the people in the rooms, then, you know, I'll send people there to get their lives saved. But yeah. So, so, so the, right. So, the, so the, the addict, you know, I know, I know, again, we know it's controversial, you know, some addicts don't want to be called addicts forever. They want to call recovered addicts, but the, when the person in recovery um, takes those four cups of grape juice they are living their exodus. It's not a. It's not a show. It's not a. It's not an event. It's. It's. It's their experience. Okay. Let's. Let's talk a few. A few moments about some just general recovery ideas before we um, read a few of the selected texts that you uh, chose. Um, hopefully in advance. Um, so the truth is, it does feel a little bit. Um, maybe just because social media is out there, um, maybe because the world feels in a certain pre-Messianic level of safe safety that people can share and talk about things that were really taboo once upon a time. You know, I was listening to some recovery workshop today, you know, from a bunch of Jewish people. And they were saying like back in the day, if a Jew, you know, you know, felt like they had alcoholism um, or addiction, they would say, no, no, just here, take some anti-anxiety pills and uh, and and you know and, and get some more sleep, um, which just turned them from to to a, a drinker and a and a drugger. So they just added to the problem. Um, but it, but it wasn't something that we could talk about. Um, now we can talk about it, which is a blessing, thank God. Um, and we get to see the beauty and learn the lessons. And that's going back to what you said before about God of understanding. I think people need to read that book because even if you don't know much about recovery, the L, the the fundamental of what is addiction is that I'm numbing something that's hurting me. Um, and whether that thing that's hurting me is a trauma that I've been through, or I just have a biochemical addiction or allergy to alcohol or drugs or whatever the particular substance is, um, the point is that I'm trying to fill that hole with something. So I finally found a solution, which is my drugs or my alcohol. And uh, the, 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 real, the real trick is to switch that unsafe 
um, numbing to a healthy, safe solving of the problem with the, the steps, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it does feel like it's happening more. And, you know, it, it's always crossed socioeconomic, you know, borders. It, it, it hit everybody, you know, the rich people, you know, Roland Hazard could afford to go to Carl Jung in, in, in London to be treated. You know, that, that must be like, you know, what, what the really expensive, you know, recovery centers are today. You know, most people couldn't afford to get royal treatment for, for their issues. Right. Um, but, but it does feel like it's, 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 it, it feels like it's more. Do, 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 you believe, do you believe that that's the case? Why? What can we do about it? You know, what, what's going on? Why, why, is the, why does the world have such a big hole in its heart? Right. Well, you know, to, 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 yeah. with this question, is, is there more addiction today than ever before? I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm asking that. I don't know if I'm asking that is there yeah. more addiction. It, right. it, why does it seem like there's so much more hurt going on? People yeah, are more pain. Yeah. There's more pain. That's, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. Well, look, the Jewish people specifically, let's just talk about the Jewish community. You know, we have a luxury in this generation that we hadn't had throughout history. Most of Jewish history was about fleeing for our lives without any type of security, protection under the law, uh, threat of starvation was very real, uh, violence. Uh... So, you know, we have a sort of luxury today, which is to start focusing on things that, you know, if somebody was an addict 150 years ago in the shtetl, there were their Cossacks coming through. I mean, you didn't really have the luxury of, of dealing with that. It was, it was about life and death. And uh, so we have the opportunity now to start being honest about what hurts us and about the pain that we're in and actually starting to do something about it. Um, but, there, but there's another side of this, which, which is that, you know, I don't know if there's more addiction today or more pain today or more trauma today than there ever was. I don't know, but I do know something. There's a lot more healing. There's a lot more recovery than ever before. And, you know, let's just talk about recovery. Let's just talk about the spiritual model for addiction and recovery. You know, that thing is, is, is 80 years old. You know, like if, if you were an alcoholic a hundred years ago, you just roam the streets like a raving lunatic until they locked you up or, 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 you know, until, until you die. And there was really nothing that could be done. So the whole idea that there's a choice is, you know, this is very new. So I, I think it's a combination of the two things that I'm talking about here. One is we're not running for our lives. So we do have the opportunity now to do some of the healing that previous generations haven't gotten to do. And I definitely believe that when we do our healing, not only do we heal ourselves, but all our ancestry. I think that's very powerful. And then the other thing is there's just simply more healing available in the world today than ever. And, you know, to me, it's pretty obvious that that's a foretaste of, of Mashiach, of the Messianic era, of the, of the perfect peace and serenity that very soon, God willing, will be uh, available for the entire world. So those in recovery are, are one segment of the population who's already tasting 
a little bit of the serenity of the uh, the complete Shabbos-like era, which will be a, a complete era of serenity, which is, like I said, God willing, going to be for everyone. Every single human being on this planet will experience it. And even the animals, because like uh, the prophets say that the wolf will, will lie down with the lamb. So the whole world will be a place of serenity. But um, even before that happens, it's it's starting to become widely and increasingly more available. And this is one of the examples, I think, I think. I think it's such a beautiful thing what you just did. You like you tripped me up on my own words unintentionally and and, and in the best of ways. Um, you know, I, I I was focusing on why does it seem like there's a bigger problem these days? You know, and one of the things that my wife, uh, she's a positive psychology practitioner, is the but what else is true? And yes, there might be a lot of hurt, more or less, we don't know. But you know what else is true is that there's a lot of healing and a lot of goodness going on that wasn't previously available. And, that, and that's just that's a, a, just a general life lesson of there's, there's always something positive to find in every scenario. L- look for that lining because it's there. Um, OK, sh- should we jump into the text or should we um, talk about talk a little bit about um, the, the Carl Jungian Maggot of Mesrich sourcing of AA? Or do you want to not go there? Whatever you want, I can do the, the you, short you, you version. Give, give the fast version. version of that because I think I I don't know I think it's fascinating and and I, I cannot hear it enough times. I think because that'll give people appreciation of the Haggadah. A lot of the incredible wisdom of the Haggadah is sourced in AA. One would say, well, why are you sourcing in AA? AA is a Christian uh, model. So let's let's debunk that. First of all, that. first of all, I, I cannot do justice to that to the argument that I was able to make. In God of Our Understanding, where right, I had hundreds of pages to slowly, systematically, methodically explain myself. So uh, I would say like this, if you have any concerns about uh, 12-step recovery being compatible with, with Jewish spirituality, I cannot do it justice off the cuff, but uh, you know, borrow somebody's copy of God of Our Understanding, and it's, it's explained there. Um, okay. But the short version, since you want to know a little bit, <laughs> the history. When I, when I wrote God of Our Understanding, one of the things I really wanted to do was to include a facsimile of the letter from Carl Jung to uh, Bill W., which to me is one of the most important documents in the history of AA. And it was actually difficult at the time to, to even find it, to locate it. And there was a whole search uh, that I had to do with the, with the Jung estate in, in Switzerland. And uh, then I found out that actually, because the letter was written in English, there was a different uh, place where those letters were kept, which is at Princeton University, actually, interestingly enough. And Princeton University's library gave me permission to reprint the letter. But it's a, it's a letter where basically, <laughs> the story's like this, in, in, before AA existed, before AA was even a, uh, an idea, there was a guy named Roland Hazard, and he was a rich uh, kid, a spoiled kid from New England, and his, his parents shipped him off for the best treatment money could buy. They sent him to Carl Jung, the psychiatrist in, uh, in Zurich, Switzerland. So uh, he goes to Jung. He's treated for a year. He's, he's uh, discharged. And he gets drunk before he's even on the boat back across the Atlantic. So he comes back to Jung and he's like, what's wrong with me? And Jung tells him, well, you know, uh, (laughs) 
I have theories about, you know, people like you, alcoholics of your type, you know, they really uh, rarely recover. But I have a theory that in, in certain cases, there are seemingly spontaneous cases of recovery. And what they seem to all have in common is a vital spiritual awakening. That was the term that Jung used, a vital spiritual awakening. So if you'll have a of a rather vital spiritual experience. If you'll have a vital spiritual experience, then uh, maybe that'll save you. But I can't do it. I tried to induce it in you, but I can't do it. So best of luck. So he goes back to New York. He found a group of guys called the Oxford Group who uh, were practicing uh, first, what they call first century Christianity. And I, 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 I said to a friend of mine, of, uh, uh, who's, a, who's a Jesuit priest, so I said to him jokingly, I said, you know, the Oxford group, they went all the way back to first century Christianity. They should have gone back one more century. <laughs> then they would get to Judaism. But at any rate, um, so he, hang, he, he was hanging out with the Oxford group in New York, and he had a vital spiritual experience. Now, in order to keep your vital spiritual experience, you got to give it away. So the Oxford group was telling him, you got to go find other drunks. So he found a guy named uh ebby or edwin thatcher and he was a drunk and he sort of carried the message to to ebby and then ebby got a, a vital spiritual experience they said you got to carry it to your friends so he was like the biggest boozer i know is is bill wilson who lives in brooklyn on clinton street and he went to bill's house and he told him about he found god and bill said i don't like that idea he says, uh, you know god of your understanding I and mean, he didn't use those words but he said uh, it's your own concept of god um at any rate, so then Bill uh, met Bob, and then they met uh, AA number three. And fast forward, uh, like uh, three decades later, and now AA has taken off. And uh, one day at AA World Services uh, headquarters in Manhattan, somebody, I don't know who it was, was like, hey, you know how originally, originally, originally our whole model comes from what Carl Jung told Roland and Roland told Abby and Abby told Bill and Bill told Bob. And then they, Bill and Bob told the world, did anyone ever tell Jung? <laughs> and they were like, no, <laughs> we should do we, 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 I think we should tell him. So, so Bill Wilson wrote a letter to Carl Jung. And this is, by the way, you know, there's a, there's a section in the big book that tells the story of Roland. And you could you could debate whether or not it's accurate. I mean, Bill Wilson is telling Roland's story, you know, uh, third hand. So you could debate whether it's accurate. But the thing is, Bill wrote to Carl Jung and told him, here's the story. Here's how we represented the story. And Carl Jung verified it, said, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And not only did Carl Jung say that's exactly what happened, but he added some details. And that's what this letter is. Uh, the Carl Jung letter. Um, so basically he writes back and he says, listen, it's hundred percent true. What, uh, what you're saying. Oh, beautiful. So somebody, beautiful. Posted, someone posted that in the chat. So there it is. That's so, fantastic. So he says, yeah, it's totally true what you said. Um, but I'm going to add some information that the patient, meaning Roland didn't, didn't even know about. He says, I basically, almost didn't tell him um i did i he said i was being misunderstood at that time all the time people were like misunderstanding the whole spirituality thing and so i was hesitant to even share that concept with him but 
so it's you know you have to stop and you have to marvel at the hashgacha pratis, which means the divine providence here, because Carl Jung almost didn't tell Roland his theory about the vital spiritual experience. Like he'd been harassed by people. By the way, you know the big break between Jung and Freud. Jung was the the Talmud, the disciple of Freud, and they broke over whether or not spirituality is essential to to human well-being. And, uh, you know, I joke that, you know, Jung had the advantage of not being Jewish, but Freud being Jewish couldn't afford, <laughs> he couldn't <laughs> afford to admit that, uh, you know, we need, we need God in order to be, to be happy and well-adjusted. At any rate, so Jung almost didn't tell Roland his theory about spirituality, but he did. And then from there, you know, that's how we have recovery as we know it today. But, in this letter that Carl Jung writes to uh, Bill Wilson, he says, I want to tell you something more. He said, the patient's uh, craving for alcohol was a lower level manifestation of man's thirst for union with God. I, it's, I, I can't read it because I'm old and I can't read uh, small letters, but uh, that's it's more or less those words. He says that the patient's craving for alcohol was a lower level manifestation of man's thirst for it, what's called in the medieval language, uh, the uh, union with God. In other words, Carl Jung said, you know what alcoholism is? It's you want oneness with God and you're mistreating it. <laughs> you're misrecognizing the, the real underlying need. And, and that's why he says also the, the, that great turn of phrase in Latin, he says, spiritus contra spiritum, which um, is, is sort of a pun in Latin because spiritus means spirit, like spirituality, ruchnius, as we call it in our Ashkenazic uh, accented Hebrew. And spirit also means like spirits, like wine and spirits, <laughs> you know, like the, the liquor store, alcohol. Right. So the appropriate antidote to the uh, misuse of spirits of the alcoholic variety is to give the patient the spirituality that's actually what he's craving. So in other words, Carl Jung's whole concept was that addiction is not the problem. It's an attempt at a solution. The problem is the craving for union with God, God, which is being unsatisfied, and the, the alcoholic's trying his best to satisfy it through the numbing out, through the escape. You know, union with God and and being drunk are very similar in some ways. You know, you you, de- you definitely forget about yourself. You get away from yourself. That's right. You get away from yourself. Or I once heard a really great AA speaker, um, Earl H. He said. It's anti-me medication, right. <laughs> right? I take this and I go away, right? So, but Carl Jung had the brilliance to understand that that's really someone wanting union with God. At any rate, and then he has that great line at the bottom in the footnote where he writes, mm-hmm. he writes in the King James English as the heart 
P-A-N-T-H-A-R-T. Panteth after the water brooks. That means a deer is panting thirstily by the water. So panteth my soul after thee, O God. Psalms 42.1. But we say, it's a Hasidic melody. At any rate, okay. So I, I, I think it's brilliant just because, you know, in a certain sense, it, it puts, it reframes and gives perspective that, that the addict is more aware of the fact that they're lacking connection with God, which is why they're searching. Right. It, it doesn't mean that, that you have to be an addict to search. But right. most of us just live our lives and, and we just go with whatever. We don't think right. too much. That's right. And, and, and the attic is maybe overthinking, but that overthinking, <sighs> when, when you put a harness, harness on it, takes right. you to the destination. And that's, that's the most beautiful part of all of this. Yeah. Uh, we're starting to run over time over. All right, let's get to some, uh, some texts. In, in okay. The- so, Nehemia, I couldn't choose which one of my babies over here, you know, <laughs> each one of these was a baby. So what I decided to do actually is uh, just to start at the beginning and do like the first, maybe three. Um, so we say beginning. Be- yeah. Start from the beginning. Meaning let's start from Bidika's Chometz, the search for Chometz on page 12, which actually happens the night before the Seder happens before Passover. It has to happen before Passover because you're getting rid of the, the chametz. So you have to get rid of the chametz before, uh, before Passover. Okay. So uh, so on the screen, we have page 12. Well, why don't you give us a quick tour of the page? Well, this is not the actual data set. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, that's, so you see here uh, on the page, you have the Hebrew up at the top here. Show them that it's Bedikas Chometz, if, if, you're, if, you know, if you're into that kind of thing. And then in English, the search for Chometz, it tells you exactly where you're up to. And each stage of the Seder, you'll see it, it very clearly marks what stage you're up to. Okay, and then it gives instructions. By the way, this is a, I, I should mention, this is a traditional Haggadah with the actual instruction. It's not only recovery insights. It's a real Haggadah. I'm going to forward to some pages so people see that. Um, yeah. you, know, you have actual guide over here. The monsters are covered. They're uncovered. Um, all the text is there. So this can 100% be used at your Seder. Yes, that's the whole point. And I should also mention there was a choice, a difficult choice, but to uh, make it Nusach Ashkenaz, which seemed to be the most popular um, request as far as which prayer rite to make it in. So it's not the Chabad uh, version of the Goda, it's slightly different. It's Nusach Ashkenaz, which is um, w- w- at least w- w- it was more requested. So that's what we did, and maybe there'll be further printings. But uh, it's a real functioning Haggadah with the actual Nusach, meaning the actual traditional text. We did not touch, we did not dare touch the text of, of the actual Haggadah or, or, and the instructions or the actual instructions. Um, the we only added. We did not tamper at all with the traditional uh, Haggadah text. Okay, so uh, let's let's read this. Okay, so revealing our defects of character. That's uh, what this little section is called, revealing our defects of character. On the night before Passover, we are obligated to search for the chometz in our homes. Traditionally, the search for chometz is performed with a feather, a wooden spoon and a candle. The following day, on the morning before the festival commences, 
we make a fire and burn the chametz we have found, along with the feather, the spoon, and the candle. It is easy to understand why we burn the feather that was used to sweep the chametz that was found, as well as why we burn the spoon into which the chametz was swept. But why do we burn the candle? After all, it did not come in contact with the chametz at all. You understand, you're going around the night before Pesach, you're hunting for the, the chametz, for the you know, breadcrumbs and everything in your house. So you have this candle and you have a feather and a spoon. You sweep, use the feather to sweep the crumbs into the spoon. So the next day, you, when you burn the, the crumbs that you found, you burn, the, you burn all the equipment that you used for the search. Now, we understand why you, why you burn the spoon, because the chametz was swept into the spoon. And why you, why you burn the feather, because the, the feather was used to sweep. The chametz. We're trying to get rid of it. We're eradicating it. The chametz represents uh, puffiness, ego. We don't want it. So, but but what's with the candle? The candle didn't touch the crumbs. So why are we burning the candle? Why is that the the minhag, the the custom? One explanation is that the candle was needed to help us find the chametz. But after it serves its purpose, we must get rid of it as well because it was involved in shedding light upon that which is undesirable. We used the light of the candle in order to reveal the chametz, which is the problem, the, the character defect, so to speak. There's a man who sponsors many alcoholics. Following the tradition that was handed down to him by his sponsor, he has his sponsees burn their written fourth step inventories after he takes their fifth step. He explained that the purpose of the inventory is to reveal the, the quote, exact nature of our wrongs. After it serves its purpose, we don't need to go back and look at it. We need to move forward and allow God to replace our character defects with the traits that he finds useful. And by the way, that's just something that somebody shared with me. Obviously, we're not telling you that this is now the official thing to burn your fourth step. This is what he did, and and, and he found it meaningful, and he related it to this idea that you use the candle to find the chametz. So even though the candle didn't touch the chametz, but it was used to help you find it, to help you see it. So, so too, the fourth step inventory, what's it for? It's for finding chametz. <laughs> it's for finding character defects. But once it did its job and it revealed those character defects so that we can surrender those character defects in the sixth step, um, at least according to that sponsor, he said, that's it. And, 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 and actually, I, I asked him about, about that. And he said, look, we always have daily inventory. <laughs> you know, we don't stop with the inventory. We continue. You have a 10th step inventory. But the fourth step, he said, yeah, that's, that, that was done. That unearthed all the garbage. We went back through our lives. Nothing counted but, but to be thorough. And, and, and then we're done. It did its job. It's like the candle that was used for this finding the chametz. You know, it, we move it on. I, you know, I, I know a person in recovery who, who also their sponsors, you know, told them to burn it. And, and I know how hard they worked on their fourth step. They spent, spent weeks and weeks, maybe even months. And, and, I remember and some spend days, years writing. My, my, my wrists are killing me. And I'm like, so why are you burning? Like, like frame it, you know, like, you know, put it in a museum, you know, go. But I guess that's the whole point is that, you know, in Yiddish, we're done with it. Don't dwell on the sin, move on. And if you have to review again, then you'll go, you'll come back and review the next time. But the new inventory will be a brand new one. Yeah. I guess we'll, yeah. we'll always make new mistakes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so let's go to page 16. 
16. Not every page has a uh, recovery insight on it. Oh, you well, skipped so, it. You skipped it. Go back well, up. Especially in the beginning, it's 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 just the lead up to the Haggadah. The yeah. Haggadah. Okay. So here's the steps. And then right underneath. So show them the steps where it has the the steps of the Haggadah. And uh, By the way, just, just since I've never done a book before, and this might be the last time I ever do, for people to appreciate how nuanced to have that little design on each one, you know, th- this is painstaking work that a- an artist has to sit and do and figure it out. And um, Spotlight gets a lot of credit for doing a wonderful job on that. Yeah, they did a gorgeous job. Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone sees behind me the whole time, the Tanya map, which is behind me, which is a project I did 20 years ago, that was the first project I did with Spotlight Design. That's when I fell in love with their work. Okay, so let's look at the little recovery insight beneath the, uh, the steps of the Seder. Good orderly direction. We begin the Seder by enumerating the precise steps that we will be taking in our journey to freedom, right? Like you just showed us those steps. Kadesh, Orchatz, Karpas, Yachatz. Okay. We realize that in the past, many of us have resisted being confined by lists or by, giving, or by being given orders to follow. <laughs> However, in sobriety, many of us have come to cherish the freedom that we gain through taking direction. Indeed, the word Seder itself literally means order in Hebrew. Is it ironic that a night that celebrates freedom is observed by following an order? We think not. Many of us have heard in the rooms that God, G-O-D, can be thought of as an acronym for good orderly direction. Therefore, we are very happy to know that the system has been laid out for us and that the 15 steps of our liberation are set up clearly in advance. That was an insight somebody shared with me. You know, somebody told me that uh, he used to get really restless at the Seder. He would get really restless. He's like this long instruction book and you got to go through it. Come on, let's fast forward. Let's jump to the end. And then after he came to recovery, he was like, he loved it. He loved how it structures it. And it Seder means order, literally good orderly direction. God, yeah. And, and it's the antidote to the chaos that led to it. Yeah, that's right. It's the opposite of the chaos of active addiction. Absolutely. That's right. And that's freedom. That's right. freedom. You know, it's a paradox. Freedom doesn't mean uh, wanton abandon. Freedom actually means there's a structure and it's safe and things are reliable. Obviously, when we're relying on God and we're God conscious, then... <sighs> We relax because we know reality is, is, is a solid place to be. It's a safe place to be. And that's all part of that, you know, direction and, and, and order. Right. I mean, not to mix our, 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 our conversations over, but, but something you, you speak a lot about on, on the parenting workshops is, you know, kids want structure. They want, they, they don't want you to, to, to order them around, but they want order in their life. They don't want to be told you can go to bed whenever you want. They want structure. No one functions in chaos. That's right. That's right. And I should say again that Nehemiah did an incredible job of creating good orderly direction for this project and channeling some of my uh, 
my uh, frenetic energy into uh, orderly vessels. Okay, let's do the next one. The very next one, page 17. You see there Kadesh, which is the Kiddush. And it has the instructions there to make Kiddush and the actual words of the Kiddush. But on the bottom there, let's look at humbly letting go. Okay. Kadesh is the first step of our journey. It's the first of the, of the Seder steps. This step is the recitation of the Kiddush blessings. Kiddush literally means sanctification. With these blessings, we proclaim this day, the anniversary of our liberation, as a holy day. In Jewish tradition, a holy day is observed as a day of Shabbos-like rest, during which we refrain from mundane activities and labors. Of course, this allows us more time to focus on spiritual affairs. But there's another message to be found here as well, meaning the fact that a holy day on in, in Jewish tradition, a holy day is a non-work day. It's a rest day. Why is a holy day a rest day? When we refrain from labor on a special day, we remind ourselves that our ability to accomplish things is limited. Many of us have heard the expression, don't just do something, sit there. Sometimes we have to humbly accept the limitations of our actions and realize that there's a difference between being busy and being productive. A festival is a day when the less busy we are, the more productive we actually become. So it's just a simple idea about, in general, about a Jewish holiday, not necessarily specific to uh, Pesach. You could take that meditation every Friday night with you uh, when you recite Kiddush or listen to Kiddush. You can think about when the day of rest comes in, it's like the most productive thing I can do right now is just let things be. Right, but I think it's I, I think it's even deeper. You know, so many people have a real issue that they need to address, and rather than actually talk about their problem or explore it, go to therapy for it. You know, address the problem. It's if, let me just take on another project. Let me numb it, not with a substance, but with a with a with an action. Let me let me take on a new activity. Let me take on new responsibility, just so that I don't have to think. Yeah, and, uh, and and that's not rest. That's actually that's that's exhausting. That's exhausting. Exactly, the opposite yeah. of it. Right. Do, you, do you want to go through the whole Haggadah and just spare people the need to buy it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't mind to go through the whole Haggadah. I was just thinking. By the way, we were talking before about the perfectionism. Yeah. Is this little purple line that I see over here? Is oh in, no! Is that in the hard copy? No, it's not. I don't see it. I, okay. The hard copy. Where is that page? Uh, what page is that? 18. 18. Let's see. No, page 18. I don't see any. Uh, okay. So this is just on my screen. Okay. That's better. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Let, um, let, let's do one more. Okay. Let's, any specific one or just go in order? No, just go in order. Let's go in order because uh, good orderly direction. Let's just go in order. Love it. Okay. And uh, maybe we'll do uh, a part two sometime. Uh, we'll another more. lingo drop there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Exactly. 21 at the bottom. Okay. Um, 21 at the bottom. Zan Orchatz, washing washing the hands. Right. The first washing of the hands. We we mentioned that, that we wash our hands twice. Okay. Um, So page 21, under the washing of the hands. We know only a little. And people who are uh, big book thumpers will... uh, 
instantly recognize those words. Generally, on Shabbos and festivals. Chase, let me interrupt a second. Yeah. Are each one of the the bl bolder black words direct pull quotes? Pull quotes no. in the book? No, no, no. Some, some are, are, some aren't. Yeah, yeah. some yeah. of them are. Uh, phrases from the big book. Others are commonly heard recovery slogans. Some of them are are, are neither. Just okay. whatever fit, whatever was the right title, whatever seemed to be this, the descriptive title. Okay. Okay. Generally on Shabbos and festivals, Kiddush is followed with washing our hands and then beginning our meal. Tonight, however, we wash our hands, but we do not begin our meal. This is specifically intended to provoke the curiosity of the children so that they will ask why this night is different from all others. I'm sure, you know, if you would ask most people who have been to a Seder, tell me one thing that you remember from the Seder. You know, they remember that why is this night different from, from all others that the children have to ask. And very often it's the, the we make a big to-do about it. The youngest child asking the Manishtano and asking why is this night different? Okay. One of the lessons we learned in sobriety is we realize we know only a little. And you see there's a footnote there, uh, and that'll, that'll indicate page 164 of, of the big book. And in the back of the, the Haggadah, there's uh, the footnotes. Right? I guess they're not footnotes, they're endnotes. They're endnotes, endnotes, yeah. And that itself was a whole conversation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we, we labored over that one. Okay, so at any rate, we're saying that uh, we instead... what. Normally we wash our hands and then we, we make the blessing on the bread and we eat the bread. So why don't we do that on the night of, of Pesach? We wash our hands, but then we don't uh, eat matzah. So what's up with that? So the answer is we do it to provoke the curiosity of the children so that the children will ask, why is this night different from all other nights? All right. So what's the recovery tie-in? One of the lessons we learned in sobriety is we realize we know only a little. It is okay for us not to understand things. <laughs> It is okay for us to be confused, and it is okay for us to ask questions. This is not only for the literal child present at our Seder, but also for the child in each of us. Like, what, what's, what's the message here? It's not just the children who are asking questions. I know the whole Seder is about getting the children to ask, but it's the inner child who's asking. And we have to be ready to ask. Asking is scary because when you ask for help, when you ask for information, you're admitting that you don't know. You're admitting that you can't do it on your own. And asking's a big deal. You know, <laughs> it, 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 it can be very, very uh, vulnerable to ask. But the night of our liberation is all about asking and saying, you know, I don't know what's going on. I'm scared. I'm confused. Am I in the right place? I, what what are we doing here? You know, it's it's. Uh, is that along the lines of in a Baishan Lamed? And if you're yeah, yeah, if you're like too the, meek, Pirkei the ethics says in a Baishan Lamed that somebody who's uh, timid can't learn. That's right. So uh, it takes courage. What's the opposite of being timid? It means being courage, courageous. It takes courage to say, I don't know what's going on here. I didn't get life's missing instruction booklet. It seems everybody else did. I don't know how to live life. I don't know what's happening. I admit it. And it's okay to say that. Yeah. 
Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if life came with a manual? <laughs> all right, let, let's do this. Only because, all right, folks, there's so much more there. It just, I'm just, I'm going to scroll them. It just gets better and better and better. There's so much incredible wisdom. You know, those who are familiar with recovery, there's such greatness in there. And those who are not familiar, um, you'll like God of understand, you'll learn a lot. And as I don't think Zagada is exclusive for those who know recovery, it, I think it'll be good for everybody. Um, Rabbi Chase, do you, the, the, I'm going to, I'm going to stop the readings for now. How about that? Are you good Yeah, no that? problem. Okay. Well, well, you know, the, the goal here, here, um, scroll back in the, uh, scroll back in the, in the, in the comment section. If, um, if people get your copy, you know, they're, they're, as soon as they arrive at the distributor, they'll be sent to you. Mr. Shaman time for Pesach. Um, Where do they get your the copy? Um, right at here. Fourcups.org, www.forcups.org, um, in your chat over there. Um, I'm going to, um, you have time for one more, like, kind of big, well, easy for you, but but a bigger question. A little, it's on the, the general, con- it, it, you know, it combines, I, I know these questions totally annoy you, but um, but 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 the regular people out there like me Nehemia are, are dying w- to w- know. worked with me for uh, six months on this project, and he found out all the things that annoy me. <laughs> um, but, but 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 what I did learn is the things that annoy you are, pro- are, are some of the best stuff that are most fascinating to everybody else. Um, maybe that's why they annoy you on some soul level. They're touching something deep. Um, your 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 screen is not pinned. Pin your screen so that people can look at something more than just me. Um, let oh, I'm not spotlighted anymore. Not spotlighted. Yeah, that's what I meant. Um, okay, so so you know th- th- this this next question that I have, kind of maybe this will be the closing question, unless you want to take some questions from the chat. Um, you know, th- this kind of puts a lot of the different conversations that you're having these days, whether it's parenting workshops to to you know just uh, education conversations, recovery conversations, a, a lot of different things that are you know there's a lot of uh, common denominators and a lot of the threads of things that you're teaching these days and and I guess the, the question that struck me is that I think you know one of the big themes that you've gotten into these days is you know something that uh, I think kind of it's evolved. It went from unconditional acceptance, to unconditional love, and now it's unconditional pride. It's like, like you know, to recognize that, you know, it, this is a little bit of a parenting kind of question, that, that, that because they are a child of God, how could I have anything other than absolute pride for my child? That's, you know, that's, that's that they're God's handiwork. So how could I have anything other than absolutely forget about accepting, accepting them flaws, who isn't flawed and, and being, um, being loving them because they're, they're my child and extension of God, but I'm proud of them. That being said, you know, I, I've spent quite a bit of time in the Al-Anon rooms and, and a big element of that is boundaries and uh, creating boundaries. I know that boundaries are not for the addict. They're for the family for, for the person themselves to stay sane and the idea of having boundaries is so that I could keep my life, my brain, my home, um, you know, orderly so that my life can stay manageable. So how do I have unconditional pride, but have boundaries in place so that I don't go crazy. And I don't, don't want to make it personal about me, just, you know, any person who has a, let, let's, let's, we're talking about the same. Let's say I have a child who's in active addiction. And I want to have a Seder in that looks somewhat orderly. 
and this child is in active addiction. I don't want them at my Seder. I don't, I, it's horrible to even say those words because the whole Seder is about bringing everybody to the Seder. Even the child who, you know, the Rebbe would always talk about bring someone who, who doesn't even know about the Seder and bring them to the Seder. But let's say I am so concerned that, you know, it's easy to be unconditionally um, uh, prideful when things are under control, when the, the person's in recovery. But when they're still in active addiction and I want my Seder to be orderly, so I'm creating a boundary that you don't get to make this house crazy. How do I have unconditional pride and boundaries and how do they work together? What was that? How was that for the longest question you ever got? Yeah. And it's not the longest question I ever got. You're uh, sorry. You don't win that, that title. <laughs> You're asking uh, about a, an apparent contradiction. Which is, if, if I can phrase it in my own words, um, on one hand, we learn in recovery, and you mentioned the fellowship of Al-Anon, um, that we need to have boundaries. And we don't want to be an, an enabler or a codependent. And at the same time, at least maybe uh, nowadays, we hear a lot about dealing with children in crisis and being totally open to them and totally loving and accepting, which sounds like the opposite of the Al-Anon approach. It sounds like the opposite of, of boundaries. So that's, that's the apparent contradiction. And I will admit to you that I grappled with that for a long time. I'm a slow thinker. I take a long time to process things. And precisely because of my background in recovery, I needed to really slowly process and figure out the whole uh, acceptance thing. Like, no, maybe, maybe we need to just tell people, like you said, you can't be here. No, there's no place for you here. The other, on the other hand, you know, like you said, the Rebbe's mandate to us to bring in every Jew to the Seder. And, and should my child be any less than the stranger's child? I mean, you and I are both shluchim. I mean, we know what that means, that the stranger's child is the most, most honored guest at a Seder. Somebody who wanders in and says, I didn't even know it was Passover until five minutes ago, right? We're thrilled to have them. So is my own child any less, any less welcome at a Seder? But, but you're right, there's, there's a lot to sort out there. So here's, uh, <laughs> now we're starting the next hour of, of the Zoom over here. Well, um, well, I know your style. Reason. You say a joke, you say a story, and suddenly, poof, there's an answer. So just do your magic again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let, 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 let me back up a little bit and explain something that... Uh, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. Do you know what part of God of our understanding I would take out if I had to go to a second printing or it's actually gone to like 20 printings, but a second edition, I would take out the entire section about the Ben made about the stubborn and rebellious son. And I would take it out because it, it has hurt people. People have told me that it hurt them. And I am so glad it's there because I would take it out and it shouldn't be taken out. 
It should be there. And I'm glad it's there. But if I came out with a second edition, I wouldn't have the guts to keep it there. In that chapter, it speaks, and I'm not going to re- reiterate the whole thing over there. You're going to have to borrow somebody's copy of God of Our Understanding. But uh, it talks about the insanity of the parents, specifically of parents, not just friends and family, but specifically the insanity of the parents of the addict and how their insanity actually exacerbates the whole drama and makes it the, the chaos that it is. And like I said, a lot of people have told me that it, 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 they, they're deeply offended by it. And, and because of that, I, I, don't have the, I don't have a heart to offend people. I would, I would take it out. But every time I've gone back to it to look at it, I say to myself, you know what? When I wrote God of Our Understanding 10 years ago, I maybe knew 100 stories like that. 10 years later, I know 1,000 stories like that. So if it was true then, to me, it's only more true to me now, having seen it just play out over and over and over again. So there's no question like you mentioned at the beginning, Nakamu, about the family disease, right? It's not just that there's the qualifier and that's it, you know, and he's the sick one. He's got to get better. No, we realize we all have to, to heal. And, and, and ideally, we realize that we all need spirituality for that healing. So let's talk a little bit about the insanity of codependence. What is that insanity? And also, why is spirituality the antidote to that insanity. So the disease of addiction is really easy. Well, I shouldn't say really easy, but it's easier than codependence to, to describe. We described it a half an hour ago. We said, you know, with the young letter that somebody's really looking for God and instead they uh, numb themselves and seek escape through, uh, through their drug of choice which may be a misnomer, drug of choice, but at any rate. So that, that's rather easy to describe. But what's a codependence drug of choice? <laughs> they're addicted, the, addict. the addict, they're addicted to the addict. So just like the alcoholic gets drunk in order to feel that he's in control, which is a big mis- misunderstanding because regular people drink to lose control. Alcoholics drink to gain control <laughs> or a feeling of control, a feeling that the world is safe and okay, right? Regular people, you have a few drinks and, and you feel buzzed and you let loose and you get uninhibited. But, uh, you know, those are amateurs. The professionals, you know, <laughs> why, why the professionals drinking? Because it's the only time I feel this world is a safe, predictable place. So, you know, the, the alcoholic is drinking in order to feel a false sense of safety and control. The codependent is trying to control the addict or alcoholic because that's the way the codependent gains that momentary feeling of control and safety. Even if it's totally false, even, you know, by by begging and pleading and making old ultimatums and uh, making you sign contracts and all the, 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 the scheming and the, the bargaining, the codependents engage in and trying to be sweet and trying to be tough and trying to uh, win the debate and, and begging and all the different stuff that the, the 
codependents will try, but what's the real fixation? What's the obsession? The obsession is that if I can get this to work, then, then, then I'm safe. I can relax. Things are okay. Things are not chaotic. They're not spinning out of control. And, and what the codependent in recovery learns is that, you know, my security and safety doesn't come from the behaviors of my qualifier. My safety and security comes from the fact that a loving God is orchestrating every moment of my life and every moment of my qualifier's life. And that God is not making mistakes. So that's why, you know, uh, spirituality is the antidote to the insanity of codependence, because the insanity of codependence is basically a false God of using the codependent behaviors as a way to fool myself into feeling like there's some control, which I don't really have. Okay. So we established that. Let's take it a little bit further. A lot of the attempts to feel the situation is under control um, are people-pleasing behaviors. You see this very, very commonly that codependents are people-pleasers. And being a people pleaser is a survival uh, tactic for, for a codependent because I can't rest. I can have no serenity until everybody is doing what they need to be doing. And maybe if I'll be sweet enough to them and I'll make them indebted enough to me and I'll please them enough, finally, they'll just stop being insane. Finally, they'll just stop endangering their life. Maybe they'll finally just be normal. So we learn to be people pleasers as like a desperate attempt to just get people to behave already, to get people to be normal. And if I, and, and that's why if you ask me to do something that violates my principles and my, and my, and my morals, I'm going to violate it if I'm a codependent in an active codependent addiction, because I can't afford to say no. If I say no, then you're going to go off and do something crazy. And then the yeah. world will explode. And, and, and um, it's my fault. And it's my fault. Right. I caused it. Now, the truth is I compromise my morals and I have no self-respect or dignity. And you owed it to me now in, 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 turn, in return for me compromising my basic dignity. You're supposed to behave. And I compromised my basic dignity and you went off and you misbehaved. <laughs> and the insanity of, of, of the codependent is, but I, but I do it again. And I think, well, maybe if I'll, I'll, I'll compromise my, my morals and my principles again, maybe, maybe finally the, the addict will, will realize that they owe it to me to behave. So really that people pleasing is so poisonous because what is it? It's a, it's a, a perverse attempt to control others. And by the way, that's why it's so hard to hit rock bottom in codependence or much more than in addiction. Because with addiction, eventually it's very hard to justify what you're doing. Codependence, you can, you can justify it to the bitter end because it's noble. It's like, it's, it's, it would be immoral 
for me not to bend over backwards to save this person who is dying well, right in front of me. I, I'm a hero. In my I'm own. a hero. That's right. I'm a hero. That's right. And there's all that, what do they call it? The sunk cost fallacy. That if I'm already down $10,000 at the blackjack table, I can't walk away until I sell my house. Right. So the people-pleasing behavior is really one of the, the favorite drinks of the codependent to get drunk on. Not for the sake of the people-pleasing, but what it gets me as a codependent, my people-pleasing gets me, at least for a second, that false promise of, oh, now he's going to behave. Now things are going to be calm and normal because I just compromised my values and did what he wanted me to do or pretended what he wanted me to pretend. So you could see why for a codependent, that's really, really, really toxic. And, um, you know, I have to learn how to say, no, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that by compromising my values, that somehow the people I love will be protected. There, there's no such promise. There's no contract to sign that says that. Okay, let's go to the next step. So when, when I realized that the people-pleasing behavior is really, really perverse, um, one thing I might do is to say, I got to stop being a people-pleaser. From now on, no more, no more Mr. Nice Guy. No more Mr. Nice Guy. In fact, I'm going to be mean. I'm going to be tough, tough as nails, rigid, rigid. And I've actually seen many people, you know, say things like, you know, I'm a recovering codependent and I'm allergic to people pleasing. You know, that's my, that's my downfall. That's my weakness. So no, I have to be rigid and unyielding and unflexible because I'm a people please. This is my recovery. My recovery is to no longer be a people pleaser. And I think that's the great misunderstanding. Your recovery from being a codependent is not to no longer do nice things for people or be flexible or be accepting or be tolerant. God forbid to say that a, someone in recovery for codependence has to become unyielding and judgmental and rigid and, and, and stern and strict. God forbid. And the, and the answer to everything is no. And the answer to everything is no. That's right. I'll get back to you. Right. Maybe I'll say yes. Maybe talk to my sponsor, maybe. But the reality is, it's not the people pleasing or being nice or being flexible that was toxic. It was using that as a drug. In other words, the codependent actually can never truly be kind. Because whenever I'm being kind to you, there's a there's a purpose. There's, a, there's an agenda. There's that's always an ulterior motive. I have to be kind to you. It's not real kindness. It's not real kindness. And I'll tell you something else. It's not real giving. It's taking. Because when I'm a codependent, when I give to you, I'm not giving to you. It's not for fun and for free, to use Chuck C's lingo from a new pair of glasses. 
when I when I'm up when I'm in active codependency and and, and I'm and I'm a people pleasing, and I give to you, you think that's for fun and for free? That comes with an invoice, and I'll bill you for it. It's an invisible invoice that comes in the mail that says I was nice and sweet and kind to you, and I let you walk all over me. You owe me. You owe me my sanity which is absolute idolatry because I'm trying to get something from you that I can only get from God. I'm trying to get my sanity and serenity from you. I can't get my sanity and serenity even from sober people. I can't get it from any people. Human beings cannot give me my sanity and serenity. I need to get it from God. So the codependent, what, what, what's the real, the, 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 the real problem, the real, uh, first drink, so to speak, that the codependent has to stay away from. It is the misappropriation of human kindness as a cynical attempt to manipulate others. I'm not, as a codependent, I'm not addicted to kindness. I'm addicted to manipulation, but I call it kindness. Don't call it kindness. If it were kindness, you know what it would look like? If it were real kindness, it would have no expectations. It would truly be free. It would be free. And this is, this is how I guide people. I tell them, <clears throat> you can make any concession. You can make any compromise. Provided it's not manipulative. In other words, if I'm saying, I'm going to do something I'm uncomfortable doing in the hopes that you will now owe me some behavior <laughs> that will give me serenity and sanity. So first of all, like I said, that's idolatry because you can't give me my sanity and serenity, but, but, but it's, it's just so it's, 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 it's so cynical. It's so, it's so it's being such a user. I'm using you, but I'm the martyr. I'm the codependent. I'm the martyr. I'm the hero. I have to be real with myself. I'm a user. I'm not really being kind. So, Really being kind and really being accepting and really being tolerant means that I do it to make you more comfortable. And I realize that even making you more comfortable may not mean you get sober tonight or this year or ever. And I'm not happy about that. I'm sad about that. But I don't think that I'm the one who can force you to do what you've got to do. So I, I think this is where the, the, the clarity comes in, you know, from the, this, this supposed contradiction that you're posing, which I know a lot of people grapple with. It's not about, do I have boundaries or, do, or radical acceptance? That's, that's not a helpful way to phrase it because it, 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 I think it's confusing. Say it like this. Am I ready? Am I ready to start being selfless in my interactions? Or do I still want to use my interactions as a, as, as a totally futile attempt to get serenity from other human beings? So I say any compromise that you're ready to make, any concession you're ready to make without any expectation that that will get you anything, that is totally sober behavior. Totally sober. And I don't think it's any contradiction whatsoever to the, to the, the dignity that one finds in Al-Anon or any of the other 
12-step programs that are for the friends and family of addicts. You know, the main thing that I think people find in recovery is, is dignity. It's dignity. And, 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 and that's with addicts as well as codependents, but I think in some ways even more so a codependent. Because with, with the addict, it's almost like, well, the, the, the side effects of my using cause me humiliation. You know, like because of the stuff I was doing, the consequences, let's call it, the consequences of my using brought me into degrading experiences, caused me humiliation. And recovery brings me, re restores my dignity. That's with an addict. But with a codependent, I think it's even more severe because like, it's almost like part and parcel of the addiction is. <laughs> what's, what's the drink? It's, it's trading my dignity for this false hope. So any concession or compromise, any allowance you can make and retain your dignity, not only is that okay, I think that that's marvelously spiritual. So let me see if I got that. I'm not going to repeat 30 minutes of that, but I'm going to ask a punchline question. So as long as I recognize that my dignity comes from my own actions and my serenity comes from my relationship with God, how I treat the addict is almost immaterial. Do come <laughs> yeah. to the Seder, yeah. Don't come to the Seder. Um, you're using, you're not using. That's almost, that's, that's a sideshow, which isn't relevant to the conversation. I'm proud of you because you're God's. You're, you're God's kid who's hurting right now and is doing things that you shouldn't be doing, but that doesn't, my love for you, my pr uh, pride about you is unchanged. And my interactions with you are just technical. Does it practically um, make chaos at my table if you're there? I may have to not allow you to be there, or, or maybe I could find it with myself to look at you like I would be kind to someone else and not make it personal. You are not going to make or break my mood or my day. I right. will, and my relationship right. with God will, and that's it. That's right. So lots to, lot to process. We need to, that's why it's good this is being recorded so we can review this and study this in more in depth. All right, we're out of time, right? And we, we're out of time. This was supposed to be an hour. Yeah, um, yeah we're way over time. I don't know who on your side is going to shoot me for, for keeping you long. Um, any parting shots besides www.4cups.org? Go buy your Haggadah today. Um, yeah. Parting shot is that thank you really, really thank you for getting me to do this. This was a dream for so many years. And people always say in, in, you know, acceptance speeches, they win an award. It was, it would have, it would have never been possible without so-and-so, but like literally Nehemia, it would not, it would not have happened. It would not have happened. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful to you. And uh, I'm sure this Pesach, many hundreds, many thousands of people will also be grateful to you. With God's help, and Hashem should bless you with all <laughs> revealed good. You shouldn't have to figure out how it's good. It should be readily apparent for you Amen. and your family. I mean, and, and thank you for, for uh, doing this journey. This was, in, in a very odd way, a lot of fun. This was, it was an yeah, incredible yeah. learning experience, and it was a great kind of fun. Part of <laughs> all right, that's it. Thanks a million. And again, folks, fourcups.org. Um, um, go, go buy your Haggadah. 
Um, Ravi Tab, thanks a million. Do you, you want to look at the Do you want to look at the um, chat or or without? It's too late. I've been glancing at it. It's beautiful stuff, but I th- I think we got to have mercy on people. <laughs> All right. A- adios, everyone. Zaygazant. Yeah. All right.